On your journey through life, you are the hero. There are times, however, when it is beneficial to have an advisor to guide you along your path. Welcome to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with Brent Mikosh, certified financial planner, certified investment management analyst, and co-founder of MP Advisors, LLC. In this podcast, Brent discusses some of the most important and interesting topics of the day as they relate to finance, the economy, and beyond. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Smart Money Simplified with Brent Mikosh. Brent, what's going on? What is going on? Well, you know, as you know, and by the time this actually gets published, we're probably going to be about a month and a half past my trip, but I've talked a little bit recently about my trip to Japan. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, one of the things that really struck me when I was over there is when you're sort of surrounded by your own civilization and culture, you start to get a sense that maybe the rest of the world might be going on a slightly different track. And as I've had some time to sort of to think about this trip, one of the things that struck me most about my time over in Japan was everybody seemed pretty normal. Uh, everybody seemed, you know, everything worked. The trains came in on time. The streets were clean. I didn't see any homeless people. The people were very polite. The society wasn't crude. I could go on and on. But it really put into relief to me that Western culture specifically has gotten, to put it bluntly, kind of crude in conversations that, that, that I have with people throughout the day. And, you know, I'm, inher- I'm inherently an optimistic person in the sense that, you know, if you don't believe that human beings are going to continue to be creative and, and do great things and, and uh, you know, build new processes and services and everything, then, you know, what's, what's the point? You, you got to have some optimism for the future. However, when I grew up, I would read a lot of Arnold Toynbee, who was a, 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 a very famous British historian that talked about the rise and fall of civilizations. And there's definitely some things in the air right now that could lead you to believe that, uh, you know, maybe Western civilization has hit its zenith. Maybe there's some other competing forces out there, you know, or perhaps we're at, we're at a big sort of bump in the road and hopefully we get ourselves right. But um, I've got a really fantastic guest today. I think this is going to be interesting. I've got a man named Daniel Hood. He's he's from the UK, so, uh, so from Toynbee's I guess, uh, motherland, if you will. And he is a guy that studies the rise and fall of civilizations and civilizational cycles. I've followed him for quite some time out there in social media. I find what he has to put out there fascinating because, you know, Daniel, I don't think you pull any punches at all. It's pretty pretty apparent to me you always say exactly what you think. And I think this is going to be a really fascinating conversation. So, so Daniel, first, I guess, just introduce yourself and how you got involved in this study of, of civilizational cycles in history to the listeners. Right. Uh, so, yeah, th- thanks for having me, guys, and uh, look forward to having ha- having a, a great conversation with you. Um, wow, w- w- where to begin? So, uh, it's true. I mean, I'm I'm a, an Englishman born and bred. You know, I, I w- w- was born in in my hometown of Manchester, which, you know, as you you guys know, the birthplace of, of the Industrial Revolution. Right. So, we were kind of the, the spawning ground for for the mighty Industrial Revolution, and um, I, uh, you know, went to went to to school, went to college. Uh, and actually, it, it, before I went off to university or did my degree, which is in finance and history, I uh, joined the armed forces. So uh, that was really my first introduction to the world of geopolitics and uh, and the application of history, the studying of history uh, to make sense of world affairs. Yeah. So I served as, as a young young officer in the uh, in a very famous regiment, the Parachute Regiment, which was first formed by uh, Winston Churchill during the Second World War. And um, that was before, during and after 9-11. So that was kind of the first warning shot across the bow of, of civilization, right? Uh, thereafter, um, I then jo- joined, uh, wor- worked in finance, finished my qualifications there, worked in the city uh, as an investment advisor, 
uh, and that was before, during and after uh, the 2008 global financial crisis. So that was the second warning shot across the bow of civilization. Because of my military background, finance background, I then got an opportunity to work in the Middle East. I actually lived and worked in Israel for about several years. And that was my third warning shot across the bow of civilization. So that, that co combination over about 10 or 15, 20 years really led me down to, to this uh, niche field in, in history, which is this idea that, that civilizations are cyclical and into a whole new world of civilizational mechanics and, and all of the scholars and scribes and sages that, that have attempted to make sense of things. So I, I just found, found that, you know, as, as events start to unfold, you kind of gravitate back to this, this notion that civilizations are cyclical and, uh, and trying to figure out the mechanics of it, of it all as best we can. And, you know, th there's nothing new. I mean, all, all of the scholars, as you guys may, may or may not be aware, will talk about some of them, you know, have attempted to make sense of this kind of stuff. So Thucydides, you know, Sima Khan from China, Evan Khaldun, Tunisia, um, you know, Edward Gibbon, uh, Max Weber, Oswald Spengler, uh, Arnold Toynbee, who we'll, we'll talk about. And then more recently, there, there are brilliant scientists like, like Dr. Jim Penman, devout Christian. He has about 12 kids in Australia. Uh, and he really has built upon some of these theories that, uh, you know, these great scholars have, have, have produced, have, have come up with over, over the centuries. And I think it's important, you know, to, to kind of state that everything happening now, it's not new, it's happened before. And, and really the past is, is a future country. So I think that a lot of people can sense this great kind of disturbance in the force, but, but you know, they're unable to make sense of it. And perhaps, you know, in times of great change, kind of the old scribes and sages and prophets suddenly appear out of nowhere trying to help people make sense of it. So, yeah, that, that's what I do, really. Um, I take great, great passion in it. And, and uh, you know, you have to be a really avid scholar, reader. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm writing a few books as well, which... which uh, which will be released at some point in the future if I ever get around to finishing them. But yeah, I, I think, you know, we're, we're, we're living in, in monumental times of change and I think things are accelerating um, and, and there are a few parallels with, which we can uh, perhaps point to mega parallels. And uh, yeah, so, so that's kind of, kind of you know, 9-11, 2008, obviously the whole Middle East saga and, uh, and here we are. <laughs> You know, I want to talk a little bit about each of those three points that you bring up, because I was in New York City on 9-11. It was about four four blocks away or so from the towers. Uh, like everyone that worked in the financial district, you knew a lot of people that, that passed away and died. But the one thing when I look back uh, and I look at my kids, for example, they'll never know the United States that I knew pre-9-11. And one of the things that Toynbee says is, is, is that you begin to see civilizations unravel when leadership responds poorly to a crisis. And by any measure, 9-11 was a crisis. You had downtown Manhattan was smoldering. But our response to that, and you know, and I know it's easy to look in the rearview mirror, but here we are now, it's you know, 22 years after, later almost. And at least my country has spent trillions upon trillions of dollars. And is Afghanistan or Iraq or any of the places that um, ostensibly were, were involved in that, or are they any better off and have any objectives or, or achievements really been met? And I think that that's um, I think you could you can make a strong argument that that the that the, the response both from a military standpoint, you know, because every civilization has a certain amount of weight that they can throw around. It's not infinite. It, resources are not infinite. And if you're going to 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 throw your weight around, you have to do it in a real measured way. And I think in the wake of 9-11, I looked around even at that period of time and said, well, wait a second here, you know. They were Saudi hijackers for the most part, but when, but we're going in Iraq. I could sort of understand you could back up the Afghanistan thing, 
But what also shocked me in the wake of that, even in New York City, where I was at the epicenter of it, it still shocked me how much the American people were willing to put up with and believe what they were told and not necessarily you know, question the narrative or very willingly give up some of their own freedoms, very willing to put a lot of the security apparatus in place with, without even questioning it. So again, that's that, for me, that was a big one in terms of our response. You were on, obviously over in the UK at that point. What was your immediate thought when 9-11 had occurred? Sure. I mean, well, I mean, I, I was a serving officer in the military. I was actually going through training, and and uh, you know, I think we, we all remember where where we were. I was just looking at the TV screens in, in other astonishment, and uh, and obviously, you're in the armed forces. There's always an, a, an element of excitement, and um, it was shortly after we we, we knew that uh, would be sent. You know, obviously, whatever you guys do across the Atlantic, we're always right there side by side. And I agree with you. I I think, you know, there was a lot of anger, disbelief. And I I think there was a a case, you know, a a case to be had. Obviously, the Taliban uh, and Al-Qaeda had set up shop and made itself comfortable. And and obviously, Afghanistan was being used as as a uh, as a base, a, a, a base, a network of terror. And so I think there was a case case to be to be had that that you know something needed to be done. But then of course it all went off the rails, right? And it all went off the rails. In hindsight, was it worth? In it? hindsight, yeah. Some, somebody somebody said to me, you know, all we all we did and it was, you know, we we before we went into to Afghanistan, the Taliban ruled partially. After we went in and left, now they rule completely. So right, and and but there's also the wider ge- geostrategic dimension. Obviously, the situation with China, one belt, one road. Maybe there was an element of that trying to kind of disrupt that relationship over there unfolding. Uh, but yeah, I I agree with you. I, I think that you know the, the parallel that I often refer to is is Rome. I I think there there is a really really strong argument case to, to to be had that that you know Britain was a former empire and and we're we're way down the, the decline kind of ladder you know and and maybe there's a case that, that maybe america is is just starting this this kind of transition or, or this, this cycle and um uh and the question is you know is is america kind of transitioning from republic to empire is the u.s already an empire and you know what's the if you look at the, the history of the rise and fall of the roman empire the western roman empire what came after that you know we, we saw a more religious world right you know, Christianity become the cultural, uh, the dominant cultural technology, and uh, and of course, Britain entered into a protracted dark age for six hundred years, right? So I I see these same parallels. You know, Mark, I think it was Mark Twain used to say that history doesn't repeat, but there's a rhythm to it, right? And and I see this kind of same rhythm unfolding. So as a civilization cycles analyst, I'm trying to to understand first of all the rules that decide whether civilizations rise and fall. What is a civilization, you know, with the highest classification of societal structure? And why do they rise? Why do they fall? What What is it that, that's happening? And I, I keep coming back to the same, you know, answers. We're the common denominator, right? So it, it's us that we need to look at, not just look back in history, but start to, to look internally and try to figure out physiologically what's happening with us, these kind of generational phase changes taking place. So yeah, I, I see the enormous cha- changes happening. I think these forces are so huge that, uh, first of all, it's very difficult for, for a lot of people to ca- kind of understand these cyclical aspects. I, I think that, um, you know, if you're a linear thinker, um, it's very difficult difficult to think laterally, right, or holistically. And so you don't always see these connections that, that are unfolding. So I think you need to be a good multidisciplinarian. You need to read a lot, a heck of a lot. And you need to be able to synthesize past, present, future. If you can do all of this stuff, then uh, you get a really good insight into what's going on. And that just, you know, that that kind of 
resonates with, with a lot of what, what I write, really. I kind of, again, I think the big, big mega story, overarching theme is this idea that maybe America resembles the, the kind of late stage Rome and, and what exactly that means. And, and I think we, we can kind of see that playing out. So, yeah, I, I think 9-11 was kind of this, this enormous warning shot. You'll remember that Ben, I think it was Ben, who was it? Was it Ben? But I know Alan Greenspan lowered interest rates, right? which, you know, free money, everybody partied, had a great time, and, and, and that built up these excesses. And then, of course, we had the 2008 global financial crisis. So there's kind of the, these, you know, everything is connected. It's just that most people don't really see these connections. They just look at individual events and treat them um, on their own merits when it should be part of an overarching kind of narrative or story. So, uh, yeah, that's what I do. I spend much of my time, I mean, you know, I have a day job, but I spend much of my time trying to make sense of, of all of these changes, past, present, future. And, and it's inescapable. You know, I, w- I work with, with various historians and scholars and, and scientists now around the world. Uh, our theories are, are, are becoming more powerful and certainly more scientific, you know, in the sense that, that physicists believe that the laws of physics apply to distant galaxies as they do here on Earth, right? But there's no way to test that. Okay, they just make these assumptions. And, and you know, I, th- I think the same can be said for civilizations. You know, Rome had a distinct civilization cycle. Greece, um, you know, before it had a distinct civilization cycle. Um, you know, Persia, the Babylonian Empire, the Egyptian, you know, Egyptian civilization, so on and so forth. Uh, and we can chronologically, we can go back 4,000 years and look at these kind of, sh- these arcs. Uh, or cycles and try to understand them right what why was it that people in late stage rome behaved thought felt and acted so differently to those who were living in the roman republic right so if if you'd have brought those those romans in the republic and put them transferred them into the future into the Colosseum, they they would have been horrified at at seeing such things but what was it what changed right and and what was it about the emperors we have brilliant emperors you know, kind of on the front nine and then on the back nine that we had absolutely abysmal emperors and uh, and then the whole thing came crashing down. You know, what was the difference between the Byzantine Empire, right, the Eastern Roman Empire versus the Western Roman Empire, etc. So all, all of these really interesting questions that have exercised the minds of scholars for thousands of years and all of this stuff has been, 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 been questioned, I think, that with such change happening today and we can all see it now i think it's incredible that we you and i and we can have the, these kind of conversations in real time right and, and information can travel at light speed so unlike rome i think our transition collapse change however you want to define it will be way faster than anything that happened uh, during roman civilization so that's what we spent spend our time trying to do detect these signals from noise and uh, and of course it affects everything you know it affects finance it affects business politics um, we can see that these uh, these great changes happening everywhere. Well, let's start on a real basic level. First of all, how, how would you define a civilization and what does a normal civilizational cycle look like? Right. So, uh, I, I mean, I, pr- I probably refer to, to Samuel Huntington, right? The clash of civilizations remaking the world order. So really simplistically, I, I probably define civilization as the highest classification of societal structure. Right. So, so you have the, the individual, the nuclear family, the community, you know, the kind of tribe, you have the nation and then you have civilization. Right. So this idea of, of you know, universalism, I think, is nonsense. This idea that it's just one world and we're all the same. I think at, at the highest classification of societal structure, we can see these distinct civilizations. So we might all speak different languages, you know, in Europe many different languages, but we, we have a distinct set of values. And I, I think it's kind of our core religious beliefs, right? So 
we can see very different core beliefs in the Islamic world, even between the Islamic world. So Sunni and Shia are very different. Sunni being majority, Shia the minority. Um, you know, Orthodox civilization. So Russia, kind of center center of the universe. Sinic civilization, Japan. They are a distinct, as you you know, a distinct civilization in their own right. They just do things very differently. Maybe there's a case to, to be had that you know Latin America is a, a kind of offshoot for, from us. But um, you, you, there's probably about several di- di- distinct civilizations. And I think that you know what's interesting is that, and I often have this debate. I, I think if you think of the 20th century, you know, we had Nazism, we had communism, both failed uh, experiments, and and and. Um, and then probably we have this third way liberalism. I, I would argue there's a case to be had that maybe, you know, we're moving into this fourth way, which I call civilizationism, right? So it's a much deeper kind of yearning to, to return to our, to our roots. And, and I think for much of the 20, 21st century, that's the, the uh, you know, that will be the, the, the dominant fourth mode, which is multi, a multipolar world, right? So, so, you know, we had obviously this unipolar order. Prior to that, we had the bipolar between the US and, and the USSR. Um, but I would argue that we're cycling back into something much deeper. Um, and then I'll, I'll probably say that the average civilization cycle within that, you have lemming cycles, you have the recession cycle. Um, so cycles within these bigger cycles, I'd probably say anywhere between 250, 300 plus years where, you know, we're talking, we're spanning, we're spanning quite, quite a few different gen- generations. And Really, the, these cycles are driven by fate, enormous phase changes in generational temperament. So we have a very precise definition of, of temperament. I should say that the rise and fall of civilizations are driven by temperament, right? So Talk like, more about that. Because you, yeah, you, you, so, so, you, you, you post quite a bit about some of these temperamental issues. And right. to me, I, I think that's, that's fascinating just in terms of how society behaves and how they conduct themselves. And right. uh, and I've noticed even in my 50 years now being alive, there's been a massive change about what is acceptable in society just in terms of basic behavior. So talk right. about some of those temperamental changes that you see through the rise of a civilization and also its zenith and a sure. fall. Sure. So there's so actually it's Jim Jim Pemmons. So I must credit credit him. I mean he he's he's the lead scientist author. And and in order to understand this, not only do you need to go back in time civilizationally and across different civilizations you also need to look inwards physiologically right so so the theory that that Penman ha, has come up with and I refer to often uh, as a yardstick really for making sense of that incredible complexity is biohistory biological history so we would probably define kind of in layman's terms define temperament as character right in other words how people think feel and ultimately behave ultimately act and temperament can be defined um, as the psychological and emotional foundations of personality, which underpins our behavior. So our virtues, vices, morals, ethics, even how we structure the economy, choose our government, um, is shaped by temperament. Um, it's relatively stable over time and situation. It's locked in early in childhood, usually up to about seven. You know, show me the child age seven, I'll show you the man. And it really shapes us in our culture and our identity right down to our DNA. So that's how important the temperament is. In fact, the, the lens within which the rise and fall of civilizations best makes sense is a revolutionary field in biology called epigenetics. Epigenetics simply means, uh, or is Latin for above the genome. So the best way I can, ex- I can describe it is, you know, th- think of a piano, the keys are our genes, they're fixed, right? They're not going to change. But what can change is how those keys are, uh, uh, are played. And dependent upon how 
those keys are played could mean the difference between, you know, a Beethoven if you're into classical music or, you know, two cats screeching in your backyard and everything in between. And that applies to individuals. And we can scale that up to entire civilizations over time, but spanning generations. So temperament is really, really important. And I think what happens is, you know, our environment, child rearing strategies, our cultural values, cultural technologies, whether you're, you know, an atheist, whether you're a Christian, whether you're Jewish, whether you're Buddhist, whether you're, you know, a Muslim, et cetera, et cetera, really define and or, or, or activate or define how we behave, think, feel, and act, right? So I, I think what happens is that, that we all start off as a culture. Culture then develops into civilization, and some civilizations then take it even further into empire, right? And, and we can see and we can point to different empires. So the Ottoman Empire had a, you know, rose, zenith, felt. British Empire, huge, enormous transition to the U.S. I think the U.S., became kind of a reluctant empire after World War II, and now that's going into reverse. So the, these cycles are driven by changes in individual temperament, right? There is a difference between people living in rural communities versus these kind of inner cities. So I think environment plays a huge, huge part. How you raise your children plays a huge, huge part. You know, we can see enormous changes in schools um, colleges, universities today, particularly across Britain and America. I think if you think, think of the power, kind of how the, the whole power system has been governed and works, you know, the, the, the Western world, and I make a distinction between the modern West and Western civilization. So the Western world, the West has been the dominant force for nearly 400 years, right? Essentially the Renaissance till present day, right? The, the British Empire, the American Empire for 200 years, the liberal world order, for 30 years. And I would argue that all of that is going into reverse now, right? So, so the dominant mode the last 30, 40 years, but our question has been this kind of liberal universalism, uh, Western values, universal values, globalism, uh, and that's worked well up to a point, but all of that's starting to disintegrate now, right? So all, all of these changes are driven by people, and then people are impacted by environment, child-rearing strategies, you know, parenting, and the cultural technologies which you espouse to. So pe people who are Bible-believing, who believe in God, who are you know, Christians, are behaving very differently to, let's say, those secular liberals and, and you know, their kind of woke offspring that, that do not believe in any of the, the kind of old traditions and, and teachings and, and biblical wisdom. So and wherever we see a society that grows really, really rich, really, really wealthy, you know, we, we, we far surpass Rome after it rose and fell. You know, we, we can expect certain things to, to, to happen. And, and, um, and I think that, uh, that we're starting to see, you know, the, the foundations have been eroded for a long, long time now, for many, many decades. And, and now we're starting to see the consequences of maybe a secular kind of faithless uh, Western world that, that's, you know, we, we've lost faith in ourselves, right? So so we, we unleashed enormous creative and commercial forces, but in doing so, we've lost faith in ourselves. And as we've lost faith, we've left ourselves dangerously vulnerable, both within civilization and, of course, between civilizations. So I spend a lot of time, yes, I'm tracking what's going on geostrategically, the rise of China, 
other civilizations. The situation in Ukraine, which you know, I have my own opinions about why, why that came about. I'm sure we'll talk about that. And um, but particularly the, the 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 kind of this woke insanity that we're starting to see um, within within our civilization. And and, and again, particularly the, the U.S. and and the U.K. You know, it's crazy. Whatever happens with, with you guys, it it also happens here in Britain in Britain as well. But but I would actually argue in many ways we're even more woke than you than you are you know because our our, our decline decline uh, we've been declining for a lot longer so well i think i think that one of the things that 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 i if you look back at civilizational cycles normally there are there's some kind of a struggle there's some kind of a challenge that people need to unify and overcome whether it was in the case of the united states you're, you're essentially taming an, a vast continent and you, obviously with with some people that were here before before westerners were that's for sure but there was a, there was a struggle and there was there was an outlet for that aggressive energy and then as you sort of you hit this this degree of opulence uh enormous creativity because if if your basic needs are being met if you can eat and you have a safe bed at night and you're not worried about bandits you know bandits marauding the, the street outside now you can turn your attention to very creative endeavors and these civil civilizations get incredibly creative in terms of the output and then things get really really comfortable and i've been thinking lately you know when i was a kid and particularly when i was a little bit younger in the work world my father would always say to me he'd be like the struggle the struggle is the best part and of course when you're right out of college you know two nickels to rub together and you're living in a basement apartment <clears throat> you don't want the struggle <laughs> you know what i mean you want you want all the stuff now but as you get a little bit of, of age and wisdom in life, you look back and you say the, the struggle kept you focused. And I think that's one of the reasons in my own life, I think you have to find things to continually put yourself into challenging and difficult situations. I think human beings are wired for that. Because if you don't, you sort of get what I feel happening in my own country right now, where you have people that are out there that they're sitting here. I've been to 56 or seven countries. I've been, I've been a lot of places in the world. And and they're you're sitting in a society in this civilization. It's an absolute miracle. It's an absolute miracle. There's a handful of countries in the world where I can walk 50 feet away and turn on the tap, and I have fresh, clean water that's drinkable that comes out. The problem is too many people are obese. There's not the issue of enough food. But you, if if you have all this given to you, now you begin to start looking for anything else that you can rail and fight against. And I think that's the that's the danger that we have, at least in my country, is you've got. We've broken into two factions here where you have half of the societies looking at, at this at this you know, marvelous environment that we live in and, and is seeking to tear it down because they've got to find some fight and some struggle. Now, is that something that you've seen typically in other civilizations as well? Is that a normal is that a normal yeah. trajectory? Right. It's it's a normal. I mean, I think that I think that cycles are inherent. So if you think of, you know, birth, life, death. Um, cycles, rhythms in nature, elemental forces of the universe, th th these are inherent phenomena. So, you know, cycles of breathing, cycles of sleeping, the seasons, uh, you know, most people just aren't familiar with any cycle that extends far beyond one lifetime. So they don't really think about it. And, and, they don't, and because they don't think of cycles, they don't think of arcs, right? It, it's like, you know, we live on a flat land. Um, I think that the struggle, that's a really important point, point that you make, you know, it, we our downfall is because we've become so successful right and and it's all driven by food insecurity and and it's really crazy to think about such really simple phenomena that have created you know how have we gone from hunter gatherer to behaving like you know people living in new york right enormous skyscrapers millions and millions of people behaving very differently and i think that that like we we've become so successful 
And therein lies the seeds of our downfall. And it sounds crazy to say that because, like you said, you know, all of the technology, the labor saving technology that we've created, it's it's now having a negative impact, right? Even AI, artificial intelligence, you know, the antonym for AI is real stupidity, right? And and the more that we start to, to believe in these technologies and we stop thinking critically, you know, it's 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 game over. So I, I agree. Wherever we see incredible wealth. High population density is another phenomenon. You know, there's a very famous series of, of, of experiments in the 60s called Rat Utopia. Uh, I don't know whether whether you, you, you've heard about it. And, and Calhoun. this was it's right. experiment. Yeah. Exactly right. So this was this stuff was simulated, right? So so scientists actually biologists actually simulated a world of abundance, right? So let's create this you know kind of liberal mecca where there's no disease, no no conflict. Everybody's got tons of food. And, you know, no outside influence needed. And within a really short space of time, without fail, the whole population died off, right? Everybody turned on each other. All of the rats were, were, were you know, the mice were, were first of all, they, they, they were breeding like crazy. And then we started to see really, really strange, or scientists started to see really strange phenomena uh, occurring. And, and, of course, those who didn't like the findings dismissed it. And, and obviously those who, who were perhaps a bit wiser maybe understood that there's something, you know, that, this, that you basically simulated the cycle of civilization. So I, I think that these forces are so great, it's literally impossible to either stop the civilization cycle. You know, think of Rome, okay? The cycle that Rome went through was so great that, that not even Christian, Christianity couldn't even slow down, let alone stop the fall of Rome, right? So, so if you look at it like this, you know, if you say, well, what is, is this phenomenon of Christianity? Okay, what is it? This derivative of Judaism, it came from the Middle East, from some place called Israel, the farthest flungs of empire. And, and it was basically um, this incredible cultural technology kind of gift from God. And it's incredible to think that something so ethereal could help to rebuild civilization. But that's exactly what it did. So you had Constantine, you had the Edict of Milan, and you had obviously the persecution, you know, the Romans were pagans. And if you just said to the Romans, listen, you guys have been around for a thousand years, but shortly after it's all gone, it's going to end. It, it would have been, it's, we've only been in our ascendancy for 400 years. The, the Romans have been around for a thousand years. And then all of a sudden, all of that was gone, right? Armies were rampaging back and forth. There was disease. I mean, it, the, the Dark Ages was, was, I mean, it was hell. You know, imagine taking a Roman citizen or, or, or this is how I often explain it. We're now in the future in you know medieval Europe. Okay, you take a peasant uh, from any of the villages, so on and so forth. You then take him back or her back in time to at the height of the Roman Empire, where you know there was a million people living in Rome with aqueducts, with with incredible technology and infrastructure, and, and, and you know concrete structures and marble structures. They would have died from a heart attack thinking they've been transported into the future where we put them back a thousand years. So, you know, Elon Musk has warned about this, that we can go backwards. We can regress. We can move back to our more primeval selves. Right. Our, our temperamental set point as a species is very low. We want to be hunter gatherer. You know, if you think of the evolution of life, single cells, multi cells, ocean to land, differentiation from plants to animals, mammals consciousness. We can go into reverse. And there's that's where cultural technologies like Christianity and you know and other religions push back at our basic natures and desires unleashed. And I think what's happened is liberalism has encouraged 
us to just completely dispense with responsibility and rules that help to build and maintain civilization. So everything, it's like a dam that's burst. The, the, the dam has burst, you know, the Hoover Dam has burst, and all of that water, you know, we're, we're now experiencing this enormous tsunami and tidal wave of insanity, right? Detachment from reality. And so that, that's why I'd argue we're starting to see really, really crazy things where kind of intellectual refugees are, are thinking, looking left and right, thinking, you know, what, what on earth is going on? So what do you think, you know, and when you mentioned Rome real quick, and that is actually the fall of Rome actually gives me some hope for the future in the sense that, you know, when, when was when was Rome sacked? 420 something ish for. Yeah, it was like four, four of course. So, yeah, it, I mean, the process that Rome's fall. Well, but Rome, Byzantium last, lasts until 1250 or right. whenever the Ottomans came so, so in. I, you know? I, I make a distinction. Yeah, I make a distinction between the, the, the Eastern Roman Empire, but yeah. Byzantium, you know, and, and the Western Roman Empire. But, you know, Rome was sacked around 476 BC by the Visigoths. But Rome's decline, but, you know, Ro Rome, for example, bugged out of Britain. I mean, but Rome was in, I mean, the Roman Empire was in Britain for 300 odd years, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and then around the kind of start of the fifth century, Rome said, hey, guys, I mean, imagine Rome had been in Britain for 400 years. I mean, I, I'm in Lincolnshire now, you know, on the Humber River, not far where the Vikings sailed up, right, right, and, and, and York and so on and so forth. And they just said one day, listen, guys, we're, you know, we've got some problems back at home. We're leaving you to it. Goodbye. And Britain and, and people were like, okay, well, what do we do? Then the Angles poured in, the Vikings poured in, the Saxons poured in, right? So it's incredible. The vacuum's going to get filled. <laughs> yeah, well, sure. yeah, exactly. It's no different. You know, the, the, and, yeah. and what, what was incredible is Britain entered in a protracted dark age for, for nearly 600 years, so the fall of Rome to the Battle of Hastings, right? And, and But I, I agree with you. There is always hope, even in these cycles. I, I think it's important there's a distinction between hope, faith, and optimism. Right. I think optimism, I agree with Oswald Spengler, where, you know, he argued that optimism is a form of cowardice. I think hope and faith, they're far more powerful. Right. They, they have they have more roots. It's like, yes, you know, the book of Daniel, we, we understand the civilization cycle. You know, it's all there in the Bible for better or worse, human nature. And we better build the ark. Right. We're on the Titanic, but it's time to, to kind of build, build the ark now and prepare for really stormy waters. So, so I have a question for you. Now, you're over, obviously, in the United Kingdom. Um, and this is obviously a very politically charged topic, but right. what is the feeling over in the UK right now about uh, what's happening over in Ukraine and, and how do you see this playing out? So, right. So, so it's a great question. So I, I, I think, first of all, it's really strange. I think of all of the countries who are really, really pushing this kind of Russia bad narrative, it, it's Britain, right? So we're even more hungry than perhaps, you know, Germany, France. And, and I would argue that this is Think of it like this. What we're seeing is the kind of wokey liberal empire up against orthodox civilization, right? So it's a, there's a real divergence on the temperament spectrum. Think, think of if you think of the global global temperament spectrum, you've probably got the most left wing wokey government in the White House in history, right? And Britain is right there on that spectrum. There's no question about that. We, we are really struggling, I think, to, to find ourselves, to understand what's actually going on. You know, I, I first of all, I don't believe that this war in Ukraine started out of nowhere. So if you believe the narrative, it's all Russia. Russia's bad. You know, they suddenly invaded Ukraine out of nowhere. They're big, bad, mean monsters, you know, the Russian bear, et cetera, et cetera. Well, if you open your history books and, and you do any kind, you have any kind of knowledge, in it, you know, depth of knowledge in geopolitics, 
this conflict has been simmering for years, right? So if you remember the Obama administration, you know, this kicked off under his watch, right? Everybody rose up. We had Brexit. We had, you know, the, the, the kind of MAGA movement who parachuted Donald Trump into power. And then we had stability, right? And, and no wars were, were starting elsewhere. Maybe there was a lot of trouble within civilization, but there was certainly no conflict being started globally. And then as soon as he was removed by the deep state or whatever, however you want to, you know, whatever you think happened there, it was obvious to me that conflict w- would start again. And I picked, I bet on Ukraine. In fact, I actually tweeted out that Ukraine is gone. That was my tweet. And then I did. Why? It. Why did you, why was your uh, focus on Ukraine? It was just an instinctive, again, based on civilizational mechanics, my understanding of, of how civilizations are cycling, our civilization is cycling presently. I suspected that the Biden administration would continue on and double down on top of Clinton, Bush, Obama, right? The kind of liberal universalist, the globalist, if that's how you, you want to categorize them, the secular globalists, globalists. And I knew that they would you know, the, the, that famous movie, A Bridge Too Far, right, with Sean Connery and, and, you know, kind of Arnhem. And I knew that it would be a bridge too far, right? Because, as you know, you know, when we went up against the Taliban, you know, these were guys in flip-flops and Kalashnikovs. We went into Iraq. There was no trouble there, you know, dealing with the Iraqi army. They just disintegrated. But the Russians are, are something else entirely. You know, they, 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 they're formidable, and if we know anything about Russian history, they always start off war really badly, right? And then eventually, like a slow-moving machine, they get their act together, and and you know, and and they 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 you know they're serious players. And um, so yeah, I, I think that uh, we've got it wrong um, in, in Britain. I I am in probably the minority that believes you know we're moving in the wrong direction. I don't think that we should be fueling. You know, we're, we're fighting Russia to the last Ukrainian. Right. And and I think it's wrong. We're not making any, a difference. I think strategically we're weakening ourselves. And I, I think that, you know, China's loving this. Right. If it, You know, they're, they're, we're thinking if we weaken Russia, it's great. We can deal with China. But China's thinking this is great. The Americans, the British, you know, the Anglo-Saxon dominated world, they're weakening themselves. Right. They have no strategic manufacturing depth. They can't build enough bombs. They can't build enough bullets. We're proving, you know, the world is seeing that NATO technology and equipment can be defeated and things just seem to be escalating. So, you know, we're now talking about F-16s. I'm hearing news reports that, you know, we're going to start training Ukrainian pilots in Romania. And in the same way that we put all our faith in these Western tanks and the Challengers and the Leopards and, and, you know, et cetera. You know, these F-16s won't make much of a difference in in the long run. So I think geostrategically, this is another warning shot. You know, like I said, 9-11, 2008 global financial crisis. We had the pandemic. But this is another major geostrategic warning shot across our back. This will be a direct hit. I think that uh, this will accelerate this cyclical transition and and the fall of Rome, I have to say it. I think that uh, by the time the dust settles, we'll see you know the, the the a huge transition of power will have been completed. In fact, we're already starting to see de-dollarization, right? We can already start to start to see see uh, see that happening. I, I don't know. You know, it, 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 sometimes you feel like you're screaming into the wind, and you're just a spectator. And um, I don't really understand what our strategic planners, both in the Pentagon and and you know in Whitehall, are doing. Uh, so what what is your what is your thought in terms of how how do you see? Because here's one of the challenges I think that we have here in the United States. 
is, and this is not good. It's not good for a society when you can't trust the institutions, whether it's the media or what the government is telling you. And no one, I don't think, really knows what is actually happening in Ukraine. You know, you're hearing about this great spring counteroffensive, but that mm-hmm. seems like it's kind of fizzled. You're hearing that the Russians are completely done. They'll be gone soon. You're hearing other things that they're not. And they're actually blowing up a lot of, you know, very new technology. Mm-hmm. To your point, I know that there's issues in terms of just the ability in the United States to manufacture some of the things we did in the past. I mean, the United States, by any measure, is still a manufacturing superpower. There's no question about that. But you cannot pretend that this is the country it was in 1945, mm-hmm. where you could roll off, you know, tanks and airplanes in, an, in almost into infinity. Where it's just right. not. We're not. We're not built like that anymore. However, when you go over to China, uh, where I've, where I have been, it's staggering the industrial capacity. I still think they lack our creative capacity, but the industrial capacity is pretty, you know, incredible in terms of what they have. So it becomes if it becomes a question of who can outbuild. Then, then you get a real issue here. So, how how do you think this thing ends? So, you know, I, I I I can't even begin to tell you how how hard and long I've tried to think think about what comes next. And and you know, you, you, I mean, you, you want to try and be as unfiltered and as autistic as as one as you can be. And I think it actually helps to be on on the autistic spectrum a little bit because you know I call it unfiltered truth, which is what I try to get across in a lot of my posts. And and as you know, I don't pull any punches. I don't hold back. You know, I'm a big believer in truth. I think there's incredible value in truth and reality, and and our brains should be calibrated as close, as anchored, as close to reality as possible. It doesn't take much to knock us off calibration. So, how does this this end? Well, I don't think it will end. I mean, we're talking about you know the fall of an entire, the transition of an entire, or cycling of an entire civilization, right? So this is an ongoing process. So I do think that the whole woke phenomenon will get worse, which will weaken us geostrategically, both within and, and between civilizations. Right. You're right. The, the Chinese, you know, man, they they're another beast. If we can't even take out Russia, what chance do we have with China? Right. And it, it doesn't even bear thinking about their capabilities. You know, before World War II, the United States was not the preeminent power. You guys were sleeping giants. I mean, you, you know, you, you, everything was in-house, everything was great. And then World War II broke out. And within a matter of years, right, just months, I mean, what's five years, 60 months, you guys suddenly dominated by far. The British Empire was on its way out. World War One, World War Two. we were done, we were spent, we're bankrupt, right? But we were fortunate. We could hand over the reins of power to you guys who said, thanks very much. You know, you guys have had a great time for 200 years. We're taking over now. It really, it really, you know, it's, it's true. You were sleeping giants and um, you, uh, you're manufacturing. I mean, the, 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 the rate of, of manufacturing growth was just it was unprecedented. That's what I see with China. And I agree with you. I've been there and I see their capabilities and what they can do. And I don't even think they've started yet. And on top of that, they've now got Russian resources, oil, gas, natural resources, which we're rejecting. So I I don't understand two things. I don't understand how we can maintain civilization and society without the correct cultural technologies to reinforce temperament. That's number one. And number two, laws of physics. I don't understand how we can maintain civilization without energy resources. Right. And we don't even have the strategic manufacturing capacity anymore because these kind of globalists, however you want to define them, thought it was a great idea in the name of profit to outsource and offshore our strategic industries. So we and it's not. And what we're finding now is we can't just resurrect our manufacturing industries. All of that knowledge, all of that know how has gone. And you need these strategic industries in time of 
times of strategic challenge and warfare. And we just don't have that. And worse, we're driving Russia and China into this incredible strategic partnership, which is it's it's like it's not the Russian bear. It's now Godzilla that we're having having to deal with. So no, it's completely insane because I mean, it's the whole, insane. whole it, it's policy insane. has always been about keeping those two powers apart. That we, was we it was to jam them together. To me, that's what Donald Trump, whether he knew it or not, that's what he did. Right. You'll notice he did not have any confrontational you know, confrontations with Russia, with, with Vladimir Putin. OK, you know, and, we, and, I, and I should stress that I do not agree. You know, I'm not a, a Putin apologist or supporter. I don't agree with with what Russia has done in Ukraine at all. Right. But, you know, we've got to be autistically truthful and honest about what's going on. And I think we're losing strategically. That's my my opinion. Uh, you know, Russia has gone in. Now they have taken 20 percent of Ukrainian territory. And just to put, you know, for, for those who, who are listening and watching that into perspective, you know, that's the size of Britain. Right. So anyone that's saying the Russians have failed, they're not succeeding. Well, I'm sorry. If you go into a country and take 20 percent territory, you, you're succeeding. And the Russians are not doing what we did in Afghanistan, Iraq. Right. Their goal is to annihilate and destroy and disarm the Ukrainian armed forces and to clear the territory and to neutralize the territory and to create these strategic buffer zones. Right. So, so they're like a slow moving lava flow, you know, that, that's just annihilating and destroying everything in its path. And, and I agree with you. I, I think that they, they, these counteroffensives will fail. You know, the Russians have got strategic depth. They've had time to mobilize their entire economy, entire defense. You know, but I mean, they're, they're going to have a million man army. Right. NATO can't even field 40,000 troops across Europe. Right. In fact, NATO is 80 percent American. That is, whenever I hear NATO, I just think America. So, and that's before we even get to China and, and Taiwan and, and the whole geostrategic situa situation and, 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 you know, military aspect, the, the economic aspect, you know, the one belt, one road uh, strategy. So I don't, if, even if it's true that Biden and these liberals are trying to defend the liberal world order, I, I don't understand how how I don't get it. I think Republicans would do a better job defending the liberal world order than many liberals, right? So uh, um, yeah, I, I I think that like I said, it's and then armed with this kind of civilizational cyclical knowledge, we can predict where things are going to be at different stages of the cycle, and everything is is, is tick, ticking off, you know. Well, well, Daniel, if you're up for it, what I'd like to do is, unfortunately, we got a hard stop coming. But what I would like to do is this, is, is, is in our conversation here today, we, we talked a little bit about, you know, what civilizations look like, how they cycle, what some of the temperamental changes. And, and then we're getting into now some of the nitty gritty in terms of where it goes from here. And obviously, we touched on Russia uh, and Ukraine from there. But uh, if you're open for it, I would love to have you back and we can focus for a part two and we can focus on really 100 percent in terms of what, what this looks like. Because ironically enough, you know, I think that some of you know, the seasons for everything and I think that some of the excesses that you have in terms of the United States and, and how we've thrown power around the world are going to be remedied. And I'm not sure that's necessarily the worst thing for, for people here in the United States in the longer term. So I, again, I, I will use the term optimist. I would say hopeful, 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 faithful with definitely some optimism in terms of the future, in terms of which way things go. But, but I'd love to engage you more about um, maybe what the next 10 to 15 to 20 to 50 years look like if you'd be up for that conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, that'd be great. All right. Let's definitely make that happen. And I appreciate you taking some time out of your afternoon. I look forward to continuing the conversation.
Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Brent. Guys, this has been fantastic. I'm so excited for part two because <laughs> I'm just, just sitting here going, man, you're just really getting into it now. Um, so, no, I'm looking forward to it. Daniel, thank you so much for being a great guest. Brent, of course, thank you for facilitating this podcast and bringing it to all of us. And our last thank you, of course, goes to the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Smart Money Simplified podcast with Brent Mikosh. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Brent comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And we humbly ask that you share this podcast, rate it, and leave a review, as this actually does help others find the show. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at MP Advisors, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Smart Money Simplified Podcast. Have any questions about topics covered during the show? Visit www.smartmoneysimplified.com or give us a call at 602-255-0555. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers with any questions you may have regarding your individual situation. Securities are offered through Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA, and SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors Incorporated, MP Advisors, LLC, is not a broker slash dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services.